0: my hometown of st louis is an awesome baseball town for those of you who know my story you know that story you know the impact of the st louis cardinals and jack buck and baseball on my life you also know it's a phenomenal hockey town and for those who have read the book on fire or know the impact of the st louis blues not only in this community but also on a little boy named john o'leary you know that it's a hockey town as well What you may not know is the town keeps expanding. We are now, drumroll please, a soccer town as well. That's right. We've been a soccer town for a while, but now it's official with MLS moving to St. Louis. And our friends at Keeley Companies are proud construction partners in building the new stadium, downtown St. Louis, focusing on applying their extensive building experience, their commitment to developing, and then implementing a successful workforce development with diversity and inclusion. Keeley Company's CEO and my friend Rusty Keeley said this, we are honored to be part of the project of creating a positive legacy in St. Louis. Learn more about that project and other projects going on at Keeley Companies by visiting them right now online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary john is the number one national best-selling author of the book on fire he's a world-class inspirational speaker and he's the host of the live inspired podcast john interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story here's your host john o'leary well hello my friends and welcome to the live inspired podcast with john o'leary We've got another wonderful Live Inspired podcast episode in store for you today. Our guest is none other than Maddie Jackson. If the name is familiar to you, it's because you may recognize also the name of her parents, Alan Jackson and Denise Jackson. Denise Jackson is a New York Times bestselling author, and Alan Jackson is is a country mega celebrity. He is the star singer of numerous songs. You're gonna hear a few of them played as we progress through the conversation today. But the music we'll be focusing on is less about Alan's music and far more about his daughter Maddie's. Maddie grew up dreaming of becoming an author like her mother. She never expected though, that her first book would be about the tragic loss of her husband. Just 11 months into her marriage, her husband, Ben, passed away unexpectedly from a traumatic brain injury. At just 28 years of age, Maddie became a widow and was forced to find a way to navigate a future dramatically different than the one she had planned. Today, you're going to hear a deeply personal, inspirational journey through a devastating loss and the difficult dance of being a young widow. And this conversation will be a reminder that no heartbreak and no loss is unredeemable. And by confidently clinging to hope, we truly can heal. It's going to be a phenomenal conversation. So I'm going to encourage you on the front side to turn off some of the distractions you may have around you right now. Grab your favorite Live Inspired journal, uncork the pen, get ready to rock and roll as we celebrate the truth that the best of our journey, in spite of the difficulties we faced in the past or face currently, remain ahead of us. So my friends, right now, I ask you to join me in welcoming the author of Lemons on Friday, Maddie Jackson Seligman. Maddie, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: It is our pleasure to have you. It's such an honor. Your story is so heroic and tragic and filled with redemptive qualities, including the quality of joy. When you have an opportunity of introducing yourself, when you meet someone at a restaurant or you know, out in life and they say, Maddie, tell me about you. What, what do you do? How do you like to introduce yourself today?
1: I mean, I'm very grateful to say now I can say I'm an author. That's been a dream of mine since I was 19. And so that's pretty freaking cool. I am sort of an accidental entrepreneur, I guess. I worked in Food and wine industry for most of my 20s and had a little wine bar restaurant in Nashville, which is where I'm from and where I live. And then ended up starting a uh, women's merchandise brand with a friend who's now my partner in our organization called Nashville, which is just a women's merchandise brand that celebrates Nashville and um, encourages women of all walks in all cities and uh, the sale of our products supports nonprofit serving women and children so that's what I do currently and I host my own podcast actually through Nashville called she's in the city kind of like you man like telling real stories of real women who struggle and overcome and just can be a beacon of hope for other people going through their own struggles so I mean I don't know how to wrap that up and put it on a (laughs) on a business card but that's sort of what I do.
0: Uh, Sojourner, I, I think that's your sub. That, that's your title. Like that. you Sojourner, man, I'm on the journey, and I'm looking forward to going through the various items you talked about a moment ago. S- sometimes to get context for the story, you've got to begin at this at the at the start. And let's start at the very beginning. Julie Andrews once saying it's a very good place to start. So we're going to back the train up from Nashville through your role as an author, through your role as a sommelier, and everything else you've done in the past, all the way to your childhood. Where did you grow up? And talk a little bit about the experience of uh, of growing up in this most unusual childhood that was uniquely yours. And so through your perspective, yeah. Very Ordinary.
1: Yeah, yeah. So born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. My father is Alan Jackson, who's a singer, songwriter, country music artist, Grammy winner, Hall of Fame inductee, <laughs> all of the things. He's really, he has knocked it out of the park for the last 35 years. And, um, you know, because of that, we had, very unique childhood um grew up in and around the country music industry in nashville but all that with the caveat of to my parents credit you know they raised us like normal kids i mean i i knew eventually what you know what my dad did was different and that that allowed us some pretty cool experiences that a lot of other people didn't have a chance to experience and you know, but for the most part, we played sports like other kids and we went to school like everybody else. They did a good job of really insulating us from what could have left us feeling pretty entitled at a young age. And I'm very grateful for that. You know, it gives you a different perspective in hindsight of the value of work and honestly, the value of humility. My dad has every reason to have a head so big he could, you know, float off this, this <laughs> earth, but he's the most humble man, you know, I've ever known. He just he writes about real life because he wants to touch and encourage real people. And that's what he's done. And I believe that's why his career has been as successful as it has been. So it's pretty cool. And, you know, growing up around a songwriter, my mom wrote a New York times bestseller book, actually my senior year of high school, it came out too. So they definitely cultivated uh, a love for writing and a love for communicating. And I, I think I carried that with me and then ended up studying that in college at the university of Tennessee and, So that's why I say like, it's always been a a dream to be a writer and to be an author. And I did a few things (laughs) in the meantime, in the last 10 years, but, you know, when I was 22 years old and I graduated, you know, my dad said, you know, I think you do have this gift, but you have to live your life and you're going to end up writing about your life. And I didn't know what that was going to be. And obviously, you know, writing the story of being widowed at 28 is not what I anticipated and it's not what I would choose. Um, but he was right. I've lived my life. And the most tragic and profound thing that I have experienced is, is now the reason that I get to call myself an author. So it's just it's kind of a devastating and beautiful and kind, full circle experience in that way.
0: I've heard you say in the past that your life was wildly blessed growing up, that you went through very little hardship and then a moment ago, you said, Hey, my mom wrote this book that came out in high school. She becomes a New York times bestselling author. And part of it, I've read the book. I, I love the book. Uh, it's all about him, right? You yeah. picture your mom and dad on the front of the book. And in that book, she shares somewhat vulnerably, not only someone completely vulnerably, not only about her life, but about some of the hardships she did go through and that you went through and observing this and some of the mistakes that we make as couples and I'm curious in reading that in high school, was it hard for you as a young girl, still formative, still trying to figure out who you are and what really matters and who you're going to become to have shared publicly the most private experiences of your mom and dad's life?
1: Yeah, it was. I remember very specifically her, well, both of them sort of prepping us and saying, you know, this is what we've chosen to do we're doing this because God has given us a platform to share hard things and to share the way that we have been able to restore our marriage. And because of that, it can really, really help a lot of other people. And we're willing to do that. But we also have done everything we can to protect y'all. And it really has nothing to do with y'all. It's only about us and our marriage. And this is why we've made this choice to share it in this way. And so I think that, again, they framed it with the correct understanding as much as you can Mm. the kids I mean I was 17 I could understand it a little bit but that this is really less about us and more about how what happens to us and through us is going to help a lot of other people and I think I could understand that at that point I I did feel kind of self-conscious about it and I know that they did too because both my parents are very private people I mean that's Uh part of sort of dad's mystery and persona is like he's this a huge celebrity and performer but he's so private and quiet and reserved and so I think it was a very very brave thing for them to do and um I mean to be honest I am sure that that played a huge role in me even considering doing it myself because right. I have seen the, the power that it has and just as a side note I reread her book when I got married in 2017 And that was such a special experience because it just, obviously I had so much more life experience and perspective going into it. And I don't know, I think I just saw the power of, of a, of a vulnerable story and like what that can do. They still have people reaching out all the time, wanting to get copies of the book. And that was 14, 15 years ago. So that was, it was a unique experience as a teenager, but I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. I think it did help set the stage for me for this.
0: Yeah, I mean, the book is 14, 15 years old now. And I encourage folks not only to check out that, but when they do so have the song playing in the background from Alan Jackson, Remember When. Remember when I was young, saw so you, and time stood still, and love was all we knew, you were the first, so was I. Made love and
1: then you cried. Remember when? Yeah, that'll bring tears to your eyes immediately. I,
0: I asked the question because the, your dad's statement of, hey, you can become an author, but why don't you live life a little bit? Why, why don't you have some experiences that are ultimately worthy of tracking and sharing? And so you go off, you graduate university, you go off and you start living your own deal. You move to Austin, Texas for a while and become a sommelier. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: What, what was the goal during that season of life? What, what were you really
1: seeking? Honestly, I have no idea. I think just adventure and sort of independence to see what I could do on my own. Like I said, writing was always, a, that's always the dream. Like that's the seed that's been planted in my heart for a long time. And I think I just wanted to see how far I could push myself into foreign territory. And, you know, I love I've always loved food and cooking and love culture and people and just wine sort of in, you know, encapsulates all of that. And it's just, it's truly fascinating how much you can learn about it. And I think I got into that environment and really honestly, just the way that I'm wired thought, how far can I push myself? So, right. to, it, it kind of became like a challenge, honestly, um, because they have all these certification, you know, exams and different levels of certification and all of this. And I just, I'm a learner and I'm a competitive person. And I, I kind of loved the environment of hospitality and community and just celebration that food and wine had. And so I did every aspect of that industry, retail, you know, restaurants. I worked with an importer, worked for the winery, did all the stuff just to kind of learn. And it was really fun. And I I'm I'm out of that now, but right. uh, it was a really cool season and I think was more about building muscles in who I was and what I was capable of doing than it even was about the wine in general. Um, there's a lot of no pun intended fruit from those seasons that I needed to to start Nashville and everything that hmm. sort of came with that. So honestly it's really fun. Like and it honestly was just really fun. I met really interesting people and you know now I'm just an overeducated consumer. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can tell the difference almost always between between red and white. Beyond that, it's uh, it gets a little dicey sometimes,
1: but that's, you're like eight out of 10. You got it.
0: There you go. So in 2013, you're probably sipping on a little bit of wine. You're at a wedding that Caroline, one of your dear friends, and you, you see this fella, would you talk about the very first time you saw Ben?
1: Yeah. I mean, he was just such a vivacious person, just like truly a joyful guy that was all about people and just all about community. And so he just sort of had this, you know, magnetism about him. He was very charismatic. And so at that point, I truly didn't go much beyond just like some dancing at their reception. For me, I was at that point working with the winery in California. didn't really think a thing about it. was not interested in anyone at that point. And that was kind of it. Didn't really meet again until two years later. So for me, you know, our meeting really wasn't even at their wedding. It was it was a few years later, actually at their home, which is also full circle.
0: What, what I loved about the your courtship is it sounded a lot like the one I also was on. So I connected with Ben because the way he felt about you the very first time he saw you was the exact same way I felt about my wife the very first time I saw her, and the response to him that you offered was the exact same <laughs> response that my beautiful wife offered. So I felt his pain during (laughs) this. I felt his pain. You meet again at at the cookout. The dude's wild about you. You had some time to reflect on this. What was he seeing in you that you weren't yet seeing in him? Like he was pursuing you with everything. What was he seeing in you? If you could be honest about it.
1: I have no idea. I don't, maybe I was unavailable. That was attractive. I don't know. I'm very independent and very sure of who I am he was as well. And so maybe he saw a little bit of that in himself and me and who knows. And even after that point, you know, it was, I turned him down again. I mean, just like relentless, honestly, at the end, I was just like, for goodness sake, okay, like, I'll give you a shot here.
0: Right. Sandpaper serves a purpose. So I'm, I'm glad eventually he set it down the edges. You finally relented. You, you go on this date, you write about it beautifully. You, you talk about like, you know, what the, the carnival where like, he's holding yeah. on and he's like, what yeah. will it take for you to finally say yes and go on the date with me?
1: Yeah, that was definitely what it felt like. But no, it, it was, I don't know, there's just a sense of confidence and sort of fearlessness that I felt like at that point, honestly, I should just honor to give him a, ch- a chance. And to be truthful, I don't think I say this in the book, but Caroline, who was both of our really good friends, you know, called her, of course, was like, "Look, this guy, this guy won't give up. Like, what, what what should I do? And she's like, Honestly, you should just go out with him. You know, she said he's a good guy, good family, you know, loves the Lord. You'll have a blast. She said, I don't think you'll marry the guy, but like, you'll have a good time. So obviously that was her speech at our rehearsal dinner. I don't think you'll marry the guy, but you'll have a good time.
0: Well, you have a good time apparently because she gave a speech uh, two years after that first date at the rehearsal dinner. I snuck through the internet if you snoop around enough you get to learn a few details about people's lives and i see this video of that not only the rehearsal dinner but the wedding itself and you are this gorgeous joy-filled princess beautiful wife and before the marriage itself he says you are the sweetest and the best thing that has ever happened to me And he says with this goofy grin on his face i'm so fired up let's do this let's have a blast Let's grow a family. Let's make everything so precious precious each and every day. And then he says, so perfect. I thank the Lord for you each and every day. You're the best.
1: Yeah, that was was just his attitude toward toward life, toward everything. It was this very joy-filled is the right word and just abundant and thankful and excited, you know, just momentum through each day. And I think I love that. I love that they got that because that is, that is how he lived most of the hours of his life. So it's, it's very special for me to have now and, and truly impacted the way that I lived life, even in our brief time together. But even three years later after his death, I mean, it still changes the way that, that I live each 24-hour time period because you want to live it like that, you know?
0: You write a lot about that. So let, let's celebrate the, the beautiful 24-hour time period. When you said that a moment ago, what what do you mean? It helps us live that 24 hour time period.
1: Well, I think that there is a privilege when we don't put too much emphasis on what's next. And I have always been a what's next person and I have always been a plan person. And I think we feel comfortable when we have, when we think we have a sense of control over where our lives are going. And I will still be the biggest advocate for the to do list and the plan and for preparedness. Like that is crucial. But there was just this sort of open handedness about the way that, you know, Ben lived his life and it was live each day to the fullest. And, and the full day doesn't always look like, you know, an amusement park or a five star dinner or a vacation. But it's just there truly was joy and appreciation in whatever was in front of him that day and whoever was with you on that day. And for me, I've learned to try to incorporate that into the way that I do my days too. And so I think it just sort of is, it creates a space for you to truly just be joyful wherever you are. And I think that, you know, as we know, happiness is more about circumstances. And I think joy is more about, you know, how you approach the 24 hours in front of you, no matter what your circumstances, like you can, you can find joy in your most painful days. And and that is a weird reality, but it's a reality that I have lived for many years now.
0: Well, let's talk about that reality because these painful days, um, tragically, just less than a year after you say the words I do and dance off into the sunset become part of your journey now going forward. Listen, I, I know you've shared this story many times and I know it's somehow probably somewhere between I've, I've already done this and every single time it breaks your heart to do it again, but you, you're in Florida. You are out there with some friends. You're having a wonderful day. Would you just take us back to the day that eventually is going to be a turning point in your marriage with your husband?
1: Yeah. So it was Labor Day weekend. We were down in Palm Beach where my parents have a place and uh, my sisters and I, their boyfriends at the time and some friends and several of them had just had birthdays. So we were just sort of doing a joint celebration we're out on the boat Dad's a big fisherman so we're riding the boat around and we pull off to a dock where there's a little restaurant tiki bar kind of thing and and then when we go to get back on the boat um you know the steps were kind of wet there had been a little shower or whatever then getting back up onto the boat sort of helping some of us and his sandal hits the wet depths and he falls back and hits his head on the concrete dock. I see this happen. We all see this happen. We sort of rush over. And, you know, but it at that point looked like nothing more than just sort of like a high school football. You know, they kind of shake their head and they come to. And, you know, I'm thinking that's going to hurt in the morning. He might have a concussion, but, you know, wasn't too worried. You know, by God's grace, there were some off duty EMTs that were there as well. And they came over and sort of just checked him out, you know, and said, you got to go to the ER now. And so they got an ambulance situated for us. Cause again, we're in this, we're not at home. I don't know what the hospitals are, anything like that. So they get us to the hospital, then, you know, they do scans and I'm sort of, I mean, I feel like I'm having an out-of-body experience, but I'm still like, it it can't be too bad, you know? And so then the neurosurgeon comes back in and, and says, you know, he's starting to have some pretty severe brain swelling you know, we don't have to do surgery right now, but we likely will within the next 24 hours. And so at that point, obviously, I'm, I'm aware this could be serious. I called both of our parents, they get a flight down for the next day. Um, ben was awake for the first 24 hours. I mean, definitely confused and in pain and in and out, but he was awake and he could talk to us and he knew, you know, who I was and who my sisters were and, and whatever. But from that point on, they had to put him into a medically induced coma just to mitigate the swelling, multiple brain surgeries, 12 days later Mm -hmm. after being in the ICU, that whole time we meet with the neurosurgeon again. She says the swelling is, has stayed where we needed to stay. We're going to start pulling him off the meds and see how he is. No kidding. His father, he was talking to me and, and Ben's dad. And Mark asked her, is this, still fatal and she said obviously I cannot tell you no but from a neuro perspective it, it shouldn't be and so we're like okay I'm bracing for his judgment could be impaired he might have some motor function issues like I'm looking at years of rehab his personality could be different so they do one more scan she comes back and she says you know I'm so sorry but he's had multiple strokes and he's brain dead like here are your options so it was just such a high, high of, we're finally coming out of this. And then to hear those words, you'd never imagine being there. And so that was, the, that was the 11th day. And then overnight um, on the 12th day there, got a call in the middle of the night that his heart was failing. And so you know, they said, if you can come in, we can keep him alive. And, and so we did. And that was three weeks before our first wedding anniversary. And mm-hmm. it was about three, three and a half years ago now. So it, it, you said it, I mean, your life can change in an instant in every way. And so, you know, that, that also goes back into sort of the 24 hours of the time, you know, live it, truly live it like it's, like it's your last.
0: There's so much to unpack from what you shared right there, this seemingly insignificant event. It's just a slip and a fall and a headache and maybe a concussion, maybe not even that much. And it just keeps trending downward. You also mentioned that you had 24 hours with him looking back on it. Now, how important Maddie is that? Are those memories and holding hands and some things you said and some things you heard?
1: I could not be more grateful. I mean, it, it, at that point, just for him to know, who I was and you know hold my hand and like pop my fingers the same way and just say like I love you and that was the best day he kept saying that whole day leading up to, to his fall like this has been the best day this has been the best day and even you know disoriented in the hospital he was still kind of trying to like reflect on that and just knowing that his truly last day that he was aware of was such a such a joyful one for him, you know, I'm, I'm glad for him in that way. It was an important part of me accepting his death and feeling any sort of peace with it, you know, in those early days, for sure.
0: You've written and you've shared on other podcasts and interviews, how faithful you were growing up and you acknowledge readily. And I'd never really been tested. You know, I had a pretty doggone good life, had a good career, Had everything I needed financially, was healthy, had great parents, had it all, met a great guy, had a great wedding, had a great 11 months in one week. God was faithful. And then you're praying that this husband of yours that you're wild about recovers. And then the very prayer you offer and, and expect and demand does not seem to be answered. So how does a young faithful widow remain faithful when it seems that the prayers she's offering are completely ignored.
1: Yeah, that was so that took a long time to to honestly sit down and ask myself the question that I think most people struggle with when they when they grapple with faith and with a god that if you believe like I do, you know, is fully sovereign. He's fully in charge. He could have stopped Vince's fall. He could have healed his brain even after it had strokes. Like I believe that that's true. And so that's what we prayed. And sometimes those prayers are answered. But if you also believe that he is a God who is good and loves us and would never do anything to intentionally harm us, there is a very difficult tension there. It took me close to a year, I think, to really I think have the mental and emotional capacity to even address that question, honestly. I mean, as anyone knows who's is, who is grieved, you know, you you're really in survival mode for quite a while. But I think once I came out of that, and I looked in the mirror, and I said, okay, if I believe these things that I have said my whole life that I believe about God to be true, then either he caused this or he let it happen. And neither of those give me the warm and fuzzies and make me want to come back to him and trust him. And so how do I move forward with this? And what I sort of came to eventually, even after asking the why, 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 why questions, which we all do, was sort of just the very simple and very gentle answer of, if I gave you the answers to these why questions, what would it change? And I think that was the moment that I, I really chose to trust God and not need to understand anymore. Mm -hmm. And that to me was how I could keep walking faithfully with him, how I could keep kind of surrendering my healing to him because I was aware very early, bearing the weight of being widowed at any point or losing anyone who is an intimate part of your life is not something that I could handle on my own. And I think I just so desperately knew that I needed God's strength and God's guidance and his comfort and his, you know, power to carry me through everything that I, I just, I, I had to trust him because I knew I couldn't do it on my own. But, you know, grappling through all of that is overwhelming. I mean, no one knows the answer to, to all of these questions. If God is good, why the bad? he let bad things happen? But where I landed was, if I got a handwritten apology, you know, from the creator of the universe and here's why this happened. And here's everything that's going to happen in your life. It's going to be good. Then would still be gone. And I would still have to learn to live my life without him. And so at that point, I just, it felt easier to me to quit asking questions and to choose to trust God, to bring good from this in me for other people. even if I couldn't see the good, then it did to keep holding it against him. That's a very honest answer. I appreciate that.
0: You mentioned this movement toward that healing. And there were a lot of steps along that journey. And a lot of our listeners, because we we people email in and they text and they write in about some of the losses they personally are dealing with or people they love are dealing with. And many of them wonder, how do I do it? Like how do how do we take the next step forward? So for you as a young widow, the first is other oriented. What what were people doing for you in those early days? Early days could be hours or it could be weeks or months or even years that you look back on and you realize, gosh, I'm so glad she said that or did that yeah. or they were there. So what were some things others were doing for you as you recovered and healed?
1: Yeah, I think what I learned the most is that it's very little about what you do for the people. And it's really just about presence. Like I am fundamentally a fix it person. I, if I love you and something goes wrong, like I really can probably fix those things and I want to fix it for you. But when you lose someone, when someone's grieving another person or a season of their life or anything, you know, that was precious to them, you can't fix it. And what I needed was for people to be with me because I my biggest fear for a long time was being alone and when I say practically you know, my friends and family had no joke an excel spreadsheet that they were just someone was on call for me every day and I didn't need the people every day and if I wanted some time to myself or I needed some time to myself I would call them off quote unquote um But, you know, that knowing that there was going to be someone there if I needed it was so crucial in the early days. And that went on for probably six weeks. But after that, uh, this is just a very practical thing that I tell people now is it's very overwhelming and emotionally and mentally exhausting. And choices are very hard and little things feel like big things. And so open-ended questions like, what do you need or what can I do for you? While so kind and well-intended, like we don't often have answers to those. But if you give me two choices, Hey, would you like to go get some lunch today? Or can I drop something off for you? I can do that. So I think that they learned to try to like, just give me a and B sort of options um, when they were offering to help. And then truthfully, once I got a little further along too, you know, you sort of have to lead, you have to lead the march to talk about the people that you've lost a lot of times, because others may not want to bring it up for fear of making you more sad or putting you in a darker place if you're having an okay day but if you want to talk about you know your loved one or whatever your circumstances and you kind of have to lead the pack and one way that they sort of learned to figure out where I was on whatever day is hey do you want to talk about Ben right now do you want to talk about what you're feeling right now or do you want me to tell you everything about my life that's going on so that you can just kind of get lost in my world for a minute and some days that's what I wanted some days I wanted to hear what stupid thing their husband did and why their children were driving them crazy and what they were doing at work, you know, because it took me out of my own reality. So I think just having those really simple, honest, you know, closed ended questions, Hey, do you want to talk about what's going on right now? Is that helpful? Or you want me to just like spill my guts to you for a minute? I mean, that was really kind to me.
0: Was it hard for girlfriends of yours to talk about their stupid husband and their darn kids and how loud they were today when they are looking across the table at a girl who is, longing like everything in the world to just be with that husband of hers and to hear that voice again and have him do those stupid idiosyncrasies that we resent in real time. But you look back and you realize, man, that's what made him so special. So how how do you, how do you blend being honest about your life as a friend, but also recognizing the other person is struggling so profoundly and you have to respect and empathize where they're coming from?
1: Yeah. God, that's such a good question. And it is such, a hard dance. I mean, that's the way that life is going to work. I mean, I have experienced this even in the last three years with friends who've had other, you know, hardships come up. And, you know, when I'm having like a high moment, you know, and it's like, how do you celebrate with one another, but also recognize and hold when they're really tender, you know, in their own life. And uh, the only answer I really know to give you is, is honesty. And, I get gentleness and grace you know our world is so wired for comparison and it's impossible not to do that um, but I think there is a lot richer conversation and there are richer relationships now because we've just walked so kindly through life with one another and kind of the twofold answer to this there's a verse in Romans that says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep and when I had to go to the weddings and I had to go to all the baby showers, I mean, it was so hard. Like there aren't words to really articulate what that felt like. And I would pray that verse over and over and over on the way there. And all I will tell you is that somehow, miraculously, that God honored that. And he let me be joyful for these people. And yes, I, I would step out of the room and go cry on the porch. And that's okay. And they knew that was okay. But there was a big part of me that felt, I've already lost so much, I'm not gonna lose the joy and the fun of celebrating these friends of mine just because I've lost something. Like I'm not gonna let my future be robbed and I know it's gonna be hard and I know it would be probably a lot easier to stay home, but I don't wanna miss this with them just because I'm broken about where I am. And we learned to kind of do that back and forth together. And I, I really hope and pray that you know, people listening have those safe people in their life. And I will say that with the caveat of not every acquaintance or friend or family member is going to be that safe person. You know, not everyone is going to handle it with grace and gently and, and say, Hey, come if you want to come, if you don't step out, if you need to step out, if you don't. And it's kind of on us to be vocal, you know, like I, most of my friends are married. We were young couples. Some had kids, some have since had kids and, you know, you do a lot of couples, things. And a a few of them asked me at one point, do you want to still be a part of this? And I said, thank you for asking. I said, all I will ask is continue to invite me like normal. And if I feel like it'll i come and if I don't, I won't. So, I mean, it's just simple honesty and generosity toward one another, but it is really, really hard. Like the grass always looks greener on the other side. And when it's such a deeply painful thing, it is like, it's like putting your open heart out on a table over and over again. And so just make sure the people that you put it out there around are, are tender with it, you know, because that you can get really hurt if they're not.
0: And you, you quote in your book an awful lot from a guy named C.S. Lewis, and he writes an awful lot about that heart and about being tender and about the, the concern if you lock that heart away. And I, I think it's so rich and bold of you to keep your heart out because um alternatively, you could choose a very different path. You you write in your book about several of the things you did that allowed you to continue taking the next right step in the the journey, awkwardly and with crooked lines, but you kept progressing forward toward, again, joy, toward, toward life. One thing you did I thought was cool is you studied heaven. You grew up in a faithful home. You knew the Bible. You could quote from Romans, but you really spent a lot of time being thoughtful and researching heaven. In that research, Maddie, what did you learn about heaven?
1: It, it sounds like a funny thing to do, but I feel like we don't, we're not taught about it a lot. And there were a couple of books that were really helpful to me. And I i truly did just camp out with that for a, for a long time because the very simple fact was on my, my worst days, the only thing that could carry me to the next right step or carry me to the next 24 hours was having a reminder of what was true about where Ben is and what was true about what he was experiencing. And the more the more scriptural foundation I got for that, the clearer that picture became for me. And the more joy, the, more, the happier I was for him. I mean, that was the simple fact. It's like, I told people that helped me be so happy for him that I could deal with how broken I was for me. And when you love someone that much, you would never take away what heaven is from them if you had the chance. And I, that getting to that place and having that sense of scriptural understanding allowed me to honestly prioritize what he had just won and where he was and what he was experiencing and what I believe is true about that and sort of hold it at a higher regard than Mm -hmm. even how broken I was. And and it didn't heal me. I didn't fix me, but it was, It was something that in the midst of being at the rock bottom of, you know, heartbreak, I could at least think to myself, you know what, I'm so pumped for him. I'm Mm -hmm. so glad for him. And I, if I'm, if if he's, if this is true for him, then I can, I can do one more day, you know? So that's, that's, that's what it meant. It really carried me through for a long time.
0: In addition to lemons on Friday which I'm encouraging our listeners to check out Is there a book from that time or a couple books that you're like, man, this was the one I was paging through and it was really meaningful.
1: Yeah, it's cool. So the big, big book that looks more like an encyclopedia, it's not like a, like a sit down beach tree. You don't know my um, listeners.
0: You're going to have to have something smaller than an encyclopedia. Okay. We're looking for <laughs> fifth notes, pictures, picture books.
1: Okay. Kids books. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. No, this was cool. It's really like a reference book and it's by Randy Alcorn and it's just called Heaven. And in it, I don't know how many there are, but probably 30 to 40, just like very practical questions that we would want to ask. And he goes through it from a very dense uh, scriptural and theological standpoint and just answers his questions. So I like kind of just cherry pick the things I wanted to know and went to those chapters. And then there's another one by John Burke um, called Imagine Heaven. And it's about three decades of him interviewing and chronicling people who had near-death experiences who experienced Jesus and some of them knew him in advance many of them didn't um so it just was it to have that experiential like narrative over and over of what people saw and experienced and felt to be true and then having that scriptural foundation painted this amazing picture for me Mm -hmm.
0: You know, we could spend some time talking about that amazing picture and talking about those books. We could talk about separately, you go into the pumpkin patch and coming back and designing little things that bring about a semblance of normalcy. But I think one of the things in researching you and reading your book is you were a high functioning type A perfectionist in control. And ultimately, you had to completely let go and surrender Part of that journey for me is is articulated and beautifully sung out in a song that you wrote and your dad put to melody called Racing the Dark. There's a red outline where that diamond used to be another time stamp love ends in casualty a one bedroom apartment is now her
1: greatest fear
0: as a crash of all the memories ring from ear to ear. It is such a good song. I, and I hope eventually it gets as much radio play and as much downloads as it deserves, but it's a beautiful song. Would you would you talk about the idea behind Race in the Dark?
1: It became a song kind of accidentally, is what I've told people. You know, I'm not really I can't really play music I can fumble around on a guitar but I can't write music when I was approaching the two-year anniversary of Ben's death that was sort of coming out of the summer of 2020 after the serious lockdowns and all that stuff and I'd been spending some time at home um, thinking about you know just everything that was coming up and you know a girlfriend of mine is a good guitar player and we had been kind of just playing on the porch or whatever we'd sort of quarantined in a little group, and um, she said, Well, I don't, why haven't you ever written a song? And, you know, da da da, gave excuses. And then one day I just felt like, I think I felt a lot of anxiety coming up on that second year because everyone's, you know, the first year will be the worst, the first year will be the worst. And it is in a lot of ways. But then I think I got to the second year, and there's this hope that maybe it won't be so painful and it's just as painful. And I think that I was dreading that. You know, my impulse, like you said, is to, just kind of power through, like, I'm a strong person, I'm very hard headed, and I really can, you know, I can handle a lot. And I think at that point, I was like, I've made it through a year, I just need to stay busy, I need to have plans, I need to just kind of skate through this, so I don't have to get down in the depths of that despair again. And this song was sort of just my own little therapy session with myself saying, hey, you can't outrun this, Like this is not something you can power through or push down or outpace. This is something that you're going to face every year for the rest of your life. And it won't be, it'll be a little bit lighter every year, but you have to face the darkness and face the heartbreak and face the fact that you still don't like what your life looks like every year. And you have to do that head on to really be able to heal the depths of what is broken. That is the story in the song. And it, of course, is a woman who's lost her husband, but not Ben and my story. It's, it's essentially me trying to fight my instinct to run away and finding the courage and finding real healing. When you, when you just go all in head first into mm-hmm. the most painful places, because that's and that's where God meets you in the richest way. And, And it's just like, I've said to people, it's like physical therapy. Like when you go to physical therapy, they work the part that's injured, you know, you push the part that hurts and it builds back. And we have to do that with grief. And it's not Mm. my, it's not my natural instinct, but that's how we heal. Tell
0: me a little bit more about Nashville.
1: So Nashville is, like I said, a women's apparel brand. We uh, are all online and we basically just use our merchandise as a means to generate income um, to serve our three missions, which are orphans, widows, and trafficking survivors. So we have nonprofits that serve each of those communities that we work with and advocate for and give back to. It's a crazy story because it really wasn't something that I planned. It was shortly after I closed my restaurant and um, was approached by my now business partner who was a friend of a friend and she had this idea for it. She's an adoptive mom and she wanted to give back to foster care orphans adoption, that whole realm it just felt I felt so strongly like that was where I was supposed to be so we started building you know the branding and the products and the infrastructure and all that in July of 2018 and wanted to add more than just one mission and so we went back to scripture says take care of orphans and widows take care of orphans and widows and so we're like okay I have no idea what that will look like I was 28 at the time she was 30 And then um, we added trafficking victims because Ben was a district attorney for Nashville and he worked a lot with the drug and trafficking court. So he worked with those women and he was saying, you know, Nashville is such a bad hub for it. People don't really realize that yet. You know, y'all might want to look into this. So he helped us build that whole kind of mission and branch of what we do. And so, you know, looking back, it just couldn't have been more divinely timed and, it just, there was a platform. I said at the beginning, I couldn't handle pain that didn't matter. And by putting me in that place and kind of spurring our hearts to even include widows in the missions we serve, it was, it was God giving me a platform for my pain to matter before anything ever happened. And so, you know, it's such, a such a personal part of both of our lives now. And it's, it's, it's a really special way for me to get to work with the people that Ben used to work with and continue to honor his legacy and to continue to speak hope and to widows, you know, all across the world, really.
0: It's a story that is uniquely yours. And yet it's, you're not the only one to live through grief and struggle and loss and pain, and then wonder where God is and what the next step is. And will you ever return to joy and happiness and peace and and hope? And yet you've continued that movement forward for those of us right now in a place in our lives where we are struggling where we've lost something that matters to us, where we wonder if better days are ahead, what encouragement might you give for those of us right now who feels if we're below water and sinking?
1: Man, I would just say like, God really does redeem everything. Like not in the way that we maybe want it to look, not in the way that we plan. Um, but like I said, at the very beginning, it, it, grieving and life is a 24 hour at a time game. And when you wake up in the morning and say, this is what I, can't handle today, God, like I hand this over to you. Give me what I need. Surround me with my people that I need. You know, you you can survive every 24 hours. And it will feel at the end of the day like I'm depleted. I'm on empty. There's no way I can do this again. And yet, you know, his mercies are new every morning, scripture says. So that's what I would tell you. I wanted to, like I said, race through it. I wanted to be, I wanted to do the right things to grieve, you know, and and be done. And that's just not what it is. And time unfortunately is a very important factor as well. Um, you know, it takes time for your wounds to become scar tissue and there's work to be done on our end, but time really does help in that. And I think the biggest thing about grief that I've learned is that it's less about learning not to hurt. And it's more about learning how you hurt and how to navigate it. And, you know, what are your healthy ways of managing that pain and grief and what are your unhealthy ways? And, and after a little bit of time, you start to learn what that looks like for you and what you need from others. And, and you just get a little better at managing it, you know, walking through life with your limbs, you get used to it.
0: Well, my friend, we are going to pivot into what we call the Live Inspired Seven. They are seven questions that tether all of our amazing guests together. And as we limp into it together with a little bit yeah. of scar tissue and a goofy grin on both of our faces. My, my first question for you, and you already answered it a, a moment ago, but it might change a little bit. Okay. What is the most impactful book you've ever read?
1: In this season and through my loss, it was definitely a grief observed. C.S. Lewis. That's what spurred me to do this. I thought if, if his words can mean this much to me, maybe mine can mean something to someone else.
0: Mm. What is one positive characteristic or one positive beautiful trait that you possessed as a little girl that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I think I was very tender toward people as a kid. And I think as we grow up, we become more guarded. And definitely this experience has grown a lot of compassion in me. So I feel like I'm trying to work back toward that tenderness a little bit.
0: Perfect. If your home caught fire and all living things are out you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item that matters to you what would you come racing back outside with
1: it would honestly be ben's bible it's in my bedside table for that reason and my dog oh my gosh obviously.
0: no the dog's out so the okay woof, the dog's they're good. outside yeah, they're barking okay, they're not I'm happy good. but they're outside safely yeah. Yeah. so the, why the bible why, why ben's bible
1: I never looked at his really when we were together because I mean, I had my own. And so after he died, I, you know, found it in his, all the stuff and it was so annotated. I just had no idea, but it's like a little look into what things meant to him, what his thoughts were, you know, his messy handwriting all over the, over the pages. And it just, I don't know, it's, it is a, it is probably the biggest treasure in the South.
0: Mm-hmm. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous Nashville day and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you want to be seated next to?
1: As a writer and reader, probably Jane Austen is what made me fall in love with books. And she wrote Pride and Prejudice when she was 19. And I just think that's the most impressive thing in the world.
0: <laughs> oh, that's a pretty big reach. I don't know what you do on your 20th birthday when you've been Yeah, done I was,
1: what? you're done. You've peaked.
0: What's the best advice that Jane or your mother or father or anyone else that you ever looked up to ever offered you? So best advice you've ever received is.
1: I remember one time as a kid, I hated going from one grade in school to the next because I was afraid whatever was coming wouldn't be as good as, you know, the class or the teacher or whatever the year before. And just dad saying that change is hard, but it's usually good. And, yeah. and trying to sort of, you know, Help me through that anxiety about, about having to change every year.
0: I see a sense of country song coming on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe another one.
0: (laughs) What advice would you offer your 20 year old self? So if you could go back in time now, a few years, a little bit more than a decade, what, what would you tell yourself?
1: I would say life is first and foremost about the people in it. Like it's not about performance. It's not about what you do. Um, It's literally about the people you do it with.
0: Maddie Jackson Selectman, it has been said that all great entrepreneurs, human beings, ladies, wives, widows, friends, leaders, authors, human beings can have their lives summed up in one sentence.
1: How would you like your
0: one sentence to read?
1: I hope I give people fuel to do things that they otherwise think they couldn't do.
0: And You reminded us that change is hard and it is good. And that walking forward with a little bit of scar tissue and a limp may not negatively define you. It may open your heart up to how God is working in your life going forward. I want to thank you for enduring the season, for having the courage to share this season and for joining us on the podcast today.
1: Man, thank you so much. It's been fun to talk to you and just kind of be a part of what you're doing. I mean, you're pouring hope into everybody on the reg so i'm happy to be a small part of that
0: you're a big part of it my friends that is maddie jackson Ben. she is the author of lemons on friday it's available wherever awesome books are sold check it out <laughs> my name is john o'leary and today is your day live inspired In re-listening to the conversation with Maddie Seligman Jackson, there were two words that just leap from the conversation into my heart and in all likelihood into yours as well. One is candor. She was so direct, so forthcoming, so vulnerable, so honest, so real in the conversation. So that was phenomenal. And the second piece that just leapt from the conversation, faithfulness. I know we all come into this conversation with our own faith. We all come from different places and find ourselves in different places. But it's hard not to be profoundly moved by the role of faith, the role that it played in her healing, in her life, in her recovery moving forward today. And as important as her faith was, where you see this animated into movement is as the community showed up alongside of her. It's so important we recognize our need to, one, lean into those around us as we move through our own storms in life. And then secondly, as importantly, live inspired family to be part of that community for others as they struggle, as they struggle. We all do. There was a part of the conversation about 25 or so minutes in when I asked Maddie what advice she would have for friends or families and those close to someone else who might be experiencing a devastating loss themselves. And simply put, she said this, It's less about what you do and far more about being present. As we all know, we live in this marketplace right now that is so divided, so busy, so cynical, so negative. And then you show up in someone's life, my friends. You show up as the living embodiment of making a mighty difference this side of eternity for all of eternity. It is a big deal. Your life is a big deal. If you want to be reminded of what a big deal it is, and you were moved deeply by this interview today, let me encourage you to check out one of my other favorite episodes dealing with a similar type of tragedy. This one was with author and speaker and heroic human being. Her name is Anna Wiston Donaldson. Many of you have read her book. Anna lost her son at age 12. It is a wild, painful, agonizing story filled with miracles and hope and joy. And so in a season of some challenge for so many of us, you may want to check out the conversation that Anna and I had together. You can learn more about that at episode 298 on the Live Inspired channel. For those of you who follow us on the website, perfect, you know how to find it. Go to com forward slash podcast and then Whittle on down to episode 298, you will find it there. And for those of you who subscribe, oh, that's so smart, so brilliant. That way it ensures that these episodes arrive into your smartphone week after week right on time. So if you have not yet subscribed, please do so right now. And then finally... One way that we continue to get the good news out there into a marketplace that is longing for it is when you share these episodes with your family, with your friends, with the ladies and gentlemen you worship with, work out with, and work with. So why not let them know that you tune in to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary and so should they, so should they. So my friends, again, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired community. I want to thank you for believing like I do, that the foundation is firm that the headwind may be real, but the best days remain in front of us. So for this time, and until next time, my name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live Inspired. I want you to think about how much life has changed in the last 10 years. Professionally, technologically, politically, globally, in your relationships. Think about how much change you have experienced, how different life is. Well, for the last 10 consecutive years, Keeley Companies has been named a top workplace by St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Their most important assets are their people, also known as the Keeleyans and are credited as the backbone of their business. You can learn more about the Keeley Company's dedication to their employees by visiting Keeley Companies. Dot com.